Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. So last Tuesday night, um, as I taught all the stuff I taught you on Tuesday morning, which was a lot, um, we, uh, we were at a home and a hundred women showed up. We didn't even know what to do with them, which that's a good problem. I hope they come back after Tuesday night. But, uh, I mean, we were a fire hazard in the neighborhood. I'm just telling you right now, but we're working on it. We're working to figure out what to do. That's a good problem to have. But at the end of the night, I was talking to, uh, one gal. <laughs> she reminded me of something very important. Um, she's new and she had, a, she had some questions. She said, yeah, I had a lot of questions tonight. And I said, well, what, what's the main question? Let me have it. Y'all aren't even going to be ready for it. <laughs> she looked at me and she goes, who's John? And I walked out of there feeling like the worst teacher on the planet. This is why we forget. We forget. If you've been in this all your life, or you've been teaching it forever, or uh, you know what I'm saying. You've been in the Word of God for a while. You forget about those that have not. Smart, intelligent people walking into a language they've never heard. And here I am teaching a book (laughs) by the name of John. (laughs) And I told her all kinds of wonderful things, but somehow I failed to tell her who John was and then can you imagine how confused she was when another John showed up on the, in the first chapter? So you have John the author, the apostle, and then you have John the Baptist. I didn't know what to tell her. I was like, yeah, there are all kinds of Johns. Just wait, there'll be a prostitute too. Because, I mean, what in the world? You know, so I walked out of there and I'm like, okay, I really have to remember. And I'm not going to do it perfect. I really have to remember to teach to that Um, but do my best to give you guys um, what you're looking for too. But I will tell you this, it can't be all my responsibility. And so when you bring someone that's new, and and you should be, Tuesday night, they're killing it. They're bringing people that are brand new. It's, It's amazing. But when you bring those people, you have to be on my team. That means you have to fill in the gaps that I can't fill in. Um, and you need to go to coffee, and you need to have those talks, and that, I'm giving you the information to do that with. You know, did you understand that? Did you understand what she said about this? Answer some of those questions, and I think uh, together, we could have a unique situation where people come, and we go really deep, but yet, they truly understand, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should, have ever, should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we work together as a team. So I'm gonna jump in back to John chapter one. We're gonna finish the themes, and then I'm gonna give you the highlights of about six portraits that John painted for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and went out without him. It was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's what we covered last week with the themes of how in the world could John begin to explain who this Jesus was. He says, I know. I'll go back to the beginning. You need to understand that the God of creation is the word. Before the beginning began, 
there was the Word. He was not only God, but He was with God. He was distinct. And with this Word was also the Ruhah, the Spirit of God. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, this unique relationship, the Creator God. This is who I'm telling you about, this Logos, this divine reason, this order out of chaos. He has come. And life is in him because he is the light of men. The darkness could not overcome it. There's going to be conflict, but light wins over darkness and life wins over death. And we saw it and we are witnesses to it. And those who believe will become children of God, not born of man's will, not born of flesh, but born of spirit. The tale of two seeds, the children of God, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, uh, my nation. He's saying something new is about to happen. And then he continues in verse 14, and he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen the glory Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the Word dwelt among us. That is the word tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Remember the idea of hyperlinks that John is speaking in code? And I want you not to miss the language that he is saying. And he tabernacled among us. Where does your mind go when you hear the word tabernacle? goes back to the story of the nation of Israel, right, in the wilderness. He tabernacled. So the noun that is described in Exodus is being used as a verb here in John chapter 1. And so when you think about that, you think about the whole narrative in that section. Something new was happening. God was birthing his nation. He was freeing his nation. They would pass through the waters they would form a covenant relationship with him. And he would tabernacle in a tabernacle. The glory of the Lord would come down on top of that tabernacle where God met with man. Do you have that picture? And this is the picture he's painting. He is saying that this is the place where heaven meets earth, where God met man, where the glory of God rested. And so he is saying that this word that I'm talking to you about he has put on flesh and has tabernacled among us. In some way, he's painting this picture that you have a living temple. Does that make sense to you? That you have a living temple among you. Are we going to see that theme coming up? The idea that this word who put on flesh was a living temple? Oh, we're going to see it, right? Do you remember when? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will what? Raise it up. So all of these themes are going to be working through. And it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the only son, full of grace and truth. That takes you back to another story. We have seen his glory. Do you remember anyone who asked to see God's glory? Moses. Okay, look at Exodus 32, Exodus 32, 30 through 32, say that again, Exodus 32, 30 through 32. This is after the golden calf incident. If you don't know what that is, God is forming a covenant with his people. Uh, it's a marriage covenant. We call it the Ten Commandments. He says, hey, it's pretty easy. Love me and only me. Get rid of all your old boyfriends, no pictures, no images, no idols. Uh, honor my name because you're going to bear it. Make me the most important thing in your life. Give me a date day every week. Honor the Sabbath. And if you're going to marry me, then be like me. Honor your father and mother, right? Thou shalt not kill. And, and he basically describes his nature. And so they enter into this covenant and he says, will you marry me? And they said, yes, we will. And so this is the situation. But then when Moses tarries, do you remember what they do? They think he's gone. They have no leader. They have nothing to see. And so they build uh, the golden image, the, the golden calf. And uh, Moses comes down and you have this whole scene. So this is after 
that rebellion, and it's uh, Exodus 32, 30 through 32. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, please, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. What is he saying? Moses is trying to be an intercessor. He's trying to say, take me instead of them. He's trying to make atonement. What happens? Can Moses make atonement? No. It says this, but the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out from my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people but they made the, because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so what happened is he sent this plague and some died and a remnant lived. And so he could not be the atonement. Later on, he asked God, I, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. Exodus 33, 18 through 20. By the way, Moses says, um, if you don't go with us, we're not going. Because uh, God is like, y'all just go on. You, you still have opportunity, but I'm not going with you. And Moses says, well, if you don't go with us, we're not setting out, right? And so then he says, I want to see your glory. In verse 18, 33, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And they'll look at Exodus 34, 6. So God tells Moses that he is going to hide him in the crack of a big rock, in the cleft of the rock. He's going to guard him and that he will pass by so he can see his attributes. So it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here you have this idea where he says, and we have seen the glory the glory of the one and only Son, full of grace and truth. This is a picture of this. When God passed by, he basically proclaimed his grace and his truth. And I don't want you to misunderstand this scripture where it says, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Bottom line, what he is saying is that God will forgive the repentant, okay? Because later on in Ezekiel 18, 20, it literally says, the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. So what it is saying is that God, people that repent, and let me give you some scripture about that. Joel quotes this Exodus. Joel 2, 12 and 13, he quotes it, talking about that if you return to God, he is slow to anger and abounding in love. He quotes this, that you will be forgiven. Also, Jonah, do you remember what Jonah was so mad about? He was sent to the people of Nineveh. He didn't even stink and want to go because he knew that God was slow to anger, abounding in love. And he knew that if he preached, many would repent and God would what? Forgive them. I don't know if you're just wicked like me, but there are some people like every now and then you just think, even them, if they're repentant. But that's the point. He is saying, so all of this is coming. These are the themes that he is saying to them. Listen. John is like, listen, 
he tabernacled among us. We have seen the glory of God on him, in him as the only son. What is it like? Full of grace and truth, slow to anger, abounding in love. He is filled with grace and truth. It is this whole scene saying that we are a witness. He is the living temple. He is the connection between heaven and earth. God dwells in him. And he is painting this entire picture for the reader. And then look at 17 and 18 in John, John 1. Doesn't he finally put a name? 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Well, goodness, he finally names him. But he's given us all kinds of names for him and descriptions of him. And then he finally says, listen, this one could do something Moses could not do. Moses could not be your substitute. Take me instead, God. No. The law came through Moses. We saw the law. And by the way, what's the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law to begin with? Were we ever going to fulfill it? I mean, love God and only God. Make him first in your life. I mean, I, I fail at that. The law, I've said this over and over, is a mirror. Sin existed before the law. But the law makes it clear because we look in the law of the Ten Commandments, just the the moral law, and we look into it and we can see we've got sin on our face. We understand it. We don't go to the law to be washed. The law tells us we got junk on our face. We then, if, if you're looking in a mirror and you have junk on your face, you go to a sink. What do we go to? The cross the washing by the blood of the lamb. And so he's saying, no, Moses brought the law so that you would be aware, but he could never be your substitute. So Moses brought the law, but grace and and truth comes through Jesus Christ. So he's finally named. So this is Jesus that we're talking about. He is equating him with the creator God, the logos, that he was with God in the beginning, that he was God, and that Jesus' life is found only in him because he is the light of man, and he will illuminate everybody. They will make a choice. There will be witnesses about him of what they have seen. And he then goes on and he says, he's the son of God, the very son, all of these themes that we have seen. And he has tabernacled among us. He is the living temple. And we have literally seen the glory of God in him, full of grace and truth. Then we go back to John the Baptist. And it says this in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. Who, By the way, who's John the Baptist? He's this prophet-like figure, right, that shows up. He's wearing all kinds of crazy things, fur, and he eats locusts, I mean, he's going to catch your attention. And if you are Jewish, he looks like the prophets of old, okay? So he catches your attention, and he is out in the wilderness proclaiming repentance, all right? John, who wrote the book, is the apostle to Jesus, um, most believe one of the 12. And so he is giving his eyewitness account. He told us his mission statement. I could have written a lot of things, but I have painted these pictures for you so that you will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the son of God, and by believing in him, you will have life in his name. This is what I've done. John the Baptist was at the time of Jesus, and he was a forerunner. He was preaching about the coming of Christ. In verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. Then what then? Are you Elijah? Nope. Are you the prophet? Because they believed Elijah would show up before the Messiah. And they also believed that this was the prophet because when Moses uh, left them, he said, be watching because someone will come like me. 
And when this happens, you obey everything he says. So they're looking for the prophet. And he says, are you that? And he goes, no, I'm John the Baptist. I'm John the baptizer. I'm John. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You think that's a hyperlink? Have I trained you? Go to Isaiah 40. Who are you? Well, I'm not the Christ. I'm No, he looks down. I'm not Elijah. I'm John. I'm not the prophet. I'm John. Uh, we know that he came in the spirit of Elijah. But he says, let me tell you what I am. And then he speaks code. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so are these religious leaders? Do they know their scripture? You betcha. So they would have absolutely known had memorized what I'm about to read you. Isaiah 40 is comforting the people after exile. It is saying that, yes, they will be exiled, but one day they will be gathered together and restored as a nation. Listen to the words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Nothing lasts, nothing lasts. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald the good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult or who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on a scale. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I am the one that is crying out in the wilderness. Something new is happening. There is a restoration coming. He is coming. It is the restoring of the family of God. And this is what it is all about. And their minds should have gone straight there, describing how one day God will bring his people back from exile from the great Babylon. He is prophesying of a restored kingdom. And then he goes on to say, they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's another theme. Do you see it? Do you underline it? Someone is coming. He is going to restore something new is happening. I'm just the one crying out in the wilderness. I took you back to something you have memorized. In this chapter, it is a story of restoration that, the, that God rules the kingdoms of men. He is the creator God. He has not lost a one. And when you feel like he does not see you or hear you, he says, oh, but I do. Do not faint or grow weary. Wait on the Lord. And you will rise up with wings like eagles. He's, he's preaching to them, and they're not understanding. And he's saying, there is one that is coming that you cannot imagine what he is like. And the next day, he sees Jesus coming out, and he turns to him, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. When is the first time in Scripture we actually see a lamb? Not just an animal that we don't know, but a lamb. It is when Abraham went to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, right? The beginning of the Jewish family. Isaac, the son of promise, the one that the nation would come through. And God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. And we have that whole scene and how beautiful it is, how it parallels God the Father and the Son at the cross. Abraham was willing to take a trip only the father and son could take. The servants stayed behind. And if you remember, Isaac carried the wood that he would die on, and Abraham carried the knife and the fire. The son would give his life, and the father would take it for the many. And we have this whole scene, uh, and he goes to kill his son, believing what? By faith that God would raise him up, because God promised that through this son, the nation of Israel would be born, and all nations of the world would be blessed through that nation, the coming of the Messiah. And so Abraham went to plunge the knife into his son, and God stopped him and says, Abraham, now I know that you have not even kept your only son for me. And he provided a ram caught in the thicket. Do you remember that? By the horns, Jesus is the horn of our salvation. He was caught in the thicket, part of the curse. You have this whole imagery, and then he was the substitute. So you have a whole picture of this lamb being the substitute uh, for sin. When's another time we see lambs? The Passover, right? The birth of the nation out of Egypt. 
How did they get freed? The 10th plague, the death of the firstborn son, and in order not to experience that, they took in a lamb, a lot of detail about that, but they would put the blood of the lamb over their doorpost and the angel of the Lord would pass over them. That was the last thing that freed them. They had to be obedient to that and they were freed as a nation. And so you have this idea of the lamb being something that will free you from bondage, free us from the bondage of sin and death. And then the system continued. Do you remember? God chose the Levites, which are the priests, and he chose them as his firstborn in Israel. And they then watched over this entire system of sacrifice. And so John is saying, he's looking at Jesus, and he is saying, listen, I've come merely to reveal him. He is greater than me because he was before me. He goes, I just baptized you with water. He is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Why? He is your substitute. And then he goes on and calls him the Son of God. Do you see every one of these themes he is telling us in the first chapter He is going to weave all of these themes and titles through his entire book. It then goes on to say, it talks about the the witnesses. So in verse 35, we see uh, the fruitfulness of John's witness, okay? Because then we have witnessing taking place. You have Andrew and Philip, right? And Andrew goes and gets who? He goes and gets his brother, Peter, and he says, Peter, we have found the Christ. Do you remember that from last year? And then Philip, he goes and finds Nathanael. All this is in chapter one right there. And he says to Nathanael, we have found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. And Nathanael's like, who's that? It's Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what he says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth. I don't know if you remember last year, but we went on a little bird walk about the fact that he would be called a Nazarene. That was the prophecy, that he would be called a Nazarene. But the fact is Nazareth didn't even exist in the time of the prophets. So how was he a Nazarene? Because that word in the Hebrew is netzer, and it literally means shoot or branch. Meaning, and and you go back to this whole idea that he is the shoot of Jesse. He is this branch that is coming out, meaning he was lowly. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Jesus meets Nathanael. And do you remember what he says? It's right there. And let me show you. Um, Verse 47 in chapter 1. He says to him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. You may have guile. Okay, but that's a play on words. I want you to recognize that. Do you remember what Jacob's name was? Meant, I mean, deceit, guile. Okay, so in some ways, this is what it says. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Jacob. And he says, now just keep that in the back of your mind. He says, how do you know me? And he says, I saw you under the fig tree, which by the way, was kind of the common place they would go to meditate on the scriptures. Jesus had seen the meditations of his heart. That may not sound miraculous to you, but let me paint you a picture. Yesterday I was hiking on a mountain and it was rough. It was a rough day. And I was grieving and crying. If you'd have seen me on the mountain, you'd have thought I had a broken leg and I was trying to you know, get through. But it was, it was deep and guttural. And I remember saying, Lord, you know, faith sucks. It really does. I know y'all are like, she's my Bible teacher. Uh, faith sucks because you want me to make you my everything. Like I'm alone. I feel like you've taken so much and you want me to make you my everything, just to be alone with you, trust you for everything. I've never laid my eyes on you. I've never seen you. 
I know about you, but <laughs> faith stinks. I'm just supposed to trust something I've never seen. I'm supposed to feel held by someone who's really never wrapped his arms around me. I'm supposed to feel all these things. Faith sucks, and I'm tired of it. And I know these things, but I just really would like to every now and then see it. Am I the only one that talks to him that way? Because I don't know. I just figured he knows. And I was, as I was going over these notes today, I thought, you know, this is what this scene's all about. Because I was sitting there and I thought, if that were me, and I met him that day, and he would look at me when he met me and say, I know you can't see me, but I've seen you all along. It was something like that that happened with Nathaniel. It was something desperately personal. Whatever he was reading or experiencing in that moment under the fig tree, Jesus made it apparent to him that he knew what it was. Nobody else knew what it was. It was the depths, it was the, the guts of him that day. And it would be like if I met him and he looked at me and he said, Shannon, I know you can't see me, but baby, I've never taken my eyes off you. I saw you. I was there. I know what you thought. And in that moment, Nathaniel looks at him and he says, you are the son of God. And then it continues to get even deeper because he says, wow. If you think that's good, wait till you get a load of what's coming. And he uses a reference that fits so beautifully in with the sentence, in, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Because then he says this to him, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The hyperlink is Genesis 28. It is when Jacob is running for his life from Esau, all hecks broken loose at home. He is breaking away. This is before he begins the nation of Israel and has the, his 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, because Jacob's name will be changed to Israel. But on his way, do you remember what happens? He's scared, he's alone, he's running for his life, and he ends up in a place where he is laying with nothing. This rich little prince who has always been around home, been taken care of by mom, and now he's alone with his head on a stone, and he has a dream. And the dream is a ladder connecting earth and heaven and the son of God is standing at the top and the angels are ascending and descending. And God says to him in his aloneness, I see you, I see you. And I'm telling you, I will keep my promise. I will be with you just like I was with Abraham and Isaac. And I will be with you. I will never leave you alone until I've done what I've said. I've fulfilled my promise. I will be with you and I will bring you back and I will bless you. And so he gets up and he goes, wow, this must be the house of the Lord. This is a special place. Jesus is referring to that. What is he saying? But this time he uses the son of man. We already looked at that a little bit. Do you remember that? The son of man is from Daniel chapter 7. And it is a reference to the Son of Man, someone like the Son of Man coming before the Most High God. And God gives him full dominion over all things. And it is an everlasting dominion. It is the eternal judge. And he is saying that the Son of Man is the ladder and the angels will be ascending and descending. And so Jesus this son of man is the ladder. He is the connection between heaven and earth. And so the whole thing of chapter one is saying, listen, you need to know who this is. He is God. He is the creator God. He is God. He was with God. The breath of God is in him. 
In him is life. There is no life apart from him. He is life because he is the light of man and the light of man has come and the darkness cannot put it out. But those who receive him, they will be born anew, not of the will of man, not of the seed of man, but born from above. And there will be a family of God, the tale of two seeds. And he goes on and he says, there will be witnesses about this. Matter of fact, we have seen him. His name is Jesus. He put on flesh. He tabernacled among us. He is the living temple. The glory of God is on him. He has tabernacled and he was full of grace and truth, the attributes of God. That's what we saw. And people begin to tell and they tell their brother and they go and they find their friends and they're like, this is the Messiah. And Jesus meets them and said, come and see, because I'm going to tell you, you're going to see greater things than this. You are going to see the son of man connect heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. What connects heaven and earth? Jesus does. He is the living temple. We're going to see those themes throughout. And then the very first portrait that he paints for us in chapter two is what? What is it? It is the wedding. Do you remember that? What's the point of the wedding? They come to the wedding. It's a wonderful festivity. We talked about it. You can go back and watch the videos on it. I'm telling you, this is the happening thing in town. Nazareth was little. I mean, Cana was little. Everybody would have been there. Jesus brings his disciples. It's a party. And what's the problem? They run out of wine. Okay. And one of the points of this whole portrait is the fact that the best is saved for last. Okay. What does he do? He turns the water. What kind of water? It's the purification water. It's the water in the purification jars, the water that they're constantly having to use to cleanse themselves outside. And he changes that into wine. And when the master of the ceremony drinks it, he's like, you saved the best for last. And in symbolism or Jewish history, wine represents joy and abundance it's the, it brings with it the idea of faithfulness and obedience because do you remember the promised land? What was one of the things they showed that the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey? Do you remember what they brought back? Big old honking grapes that they had to carry between two men on a pole. It grapes, wine, a picture of joy and abundance and life and celebration and obedience. It's the picture of the garden. It's a picture of Eden. And look what he is saying. Listen, I have saved the best for last. Would there be any hyperlinks in this situation? Go to Isaiah 25. Beautiful pro uh, prophecy of the restored kingdom. It says this in Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. I'm not much of a steak eater, but I know that the best steak has the bone in it, right? Okay, that's the point. It's the best cut of meat with the most flavor and the well-aged wine and it says, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from our faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, there is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What is this saying? It's saying one day we're gonna be having a feast, abundance and joy and blessing. While we're swallowing that, what is he swallowing? Death. He will be swallowing death while we're sitting at this banquet. And then, and it goes on to say, 
He is our God. He is our God. And we have been waiting for him that we might be saved. He will wipe every tear from our eye. That should take you to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Are you getting all these connections? What story are we in? What portrait is he painting? A wedding. Jesus starts with a wedding in his ministry. And in the end of all things, there will be a wedding, the marriage supper of the lamb. And it's about the wine and saving the best for last. And they knew wine was abundance, wine and, and meat with the bones still in it. And while we're eating that, he's going to swallow up death and he will wipe every tear from our eye. And John is writing about it right here because he sees it in a vision. And he's talking and he says, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. You see the theme? The dwelling place of God is with men. He tabernacled among us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is covenant relationship talk. His ministry started with a wedding and it will end with the wedding. And one of the biggest themes from that portrait is he will save the best for what? For last. The grapes also, the wine, also represent blood. How does he do that? How does our groom prepare his bride? He paid the price for us. He shed his blood so that we could put on that white garment. He presents to us as his bride, scripture says, and what a celebration that will be. This beautiful portrait. I've chosen this to begin with so that you understand who he is. Oh, we have waited on our God. Oh, how we have waited for him. Oh, that he would bring us salvation. This is the portrait of the wedding. The next thing we see, I would call the temple incident. It's in chapter two, second half of chapter two. The first thing was a Jewish institution. It was marriage. The second thing we looked at last year, you want to talk about a, an institution, all right? This is a symbolic space. It's the national religious symbol of the Jewish nation. It's the temple. What time of year was it? That This is the whole scene of him clearing the temple. Do you remember this? Okay. The scene was Passover, which meant that there were a lot of animals around because they were necessary for sacrifice. Um, and which meant that there were money changers around. Uh, because if you're not familiar, they were required, there were certain feasts where the Jewish men were required to come. They were required to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, to be a part of it. And so people came from all over. There were thousands and thousands there. And most of the time, they would not bring an animal with them because they something could happen to them along the way, and they would not be declared pure enough for sacrifice, not to mention this whole system is wicked, right? And so they most often would purchase a sacrifice there. But what has happened is the system has gotten corrupted. That 
um, the leadership is corrupt. So what does Jesus do? Don't take this lightly. He shut down the entire system. Do you understand that? I don't know how long. I don't know how long it took them to get it up and running. That, that would be like us walking in and shutting down Congress. But this is no, uh, no little thing. He shut down the entire system. Why was he so angered? Because this was a system where God dwelt with, God dwelt with man. God made himself available to man. This is where they met. And they had corrupted this system. And so this is where he performs a second, although this is a prophetic sign. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, do you remember what happened? He, the leaders come to him and they're like, what the heck? What gives you authority to do this? And he's like, I'll tell you what gives me authority. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. Now, did they understand it? No, they're like, do you know how long it took to get this temple that you see? And by the way, the disciples didn't understand it there either, okay? But in that section, do you remember what John does? Some of you are like, no, because Shannon, I wasn't here last year. I don't remember what he does. Well, at that point, John gives a little like narrative over here saying, well, now when Jesus rose from the dead, we understand that he was talking about his body. Okay, so do you remember how I told you these are like portraits? Have you ever seen the portrait of, um, oh, who is it that did the Thanksgiving meal? And it, I can't remember the artist, but they're all around the table. Is it, what, who is it? Yes, Rockwell. And so you can see this scene, this, old, this Thanksgiving scene around the table, but if you've ever looked at it, go look it up later. You will see in the bottom corner over here of the deal, Somebody is looking back at you. It's weird. So you're looking at a scene, but then someone in the scene is looking back at the person looking at the art. And so it's almost like that's what's happening in this portrait to where we're looking at this portrait to understand something, but then John does this. Oh, by the way, we didn't understand that either. It wasn't until he was raised from the dead that we understood that he was talking about his body. Okay, now let's get back to the scene. That, that's what he does, okay? But the point is this. This is a prophetic sign because what he is saying is this. Destroy this temple. The destruction of the temple is coming, by the way. The temple, the time of the man-made temple is coming to an end, which, by the way, it did in AD 70 when it was destroyed by the Romans. But it is a prophetic sign saying, who is the temple? The temple was designed to always point towards something. So he wasn't going to allow it to be corrupt because who did it point to? Him. And so he says, the time of the temple is coming to an end, but also you will try to destroy this temple. But three days later, I will do what? I will raise it up again. So although this second sign right here is prophetic, it is not completed. It's actually the seventh sign, not the second, because when is that sign come into fruition? The empty tomb. He will be raised up. And that is why Revelation says that there is no temple in the new Jerusalem. He is the temple. So that's why I get a little bit crazy when we talk about, oh, that the temple needs to be rebuilt. Why? He's the temple. The glory of God will never again exist in a temple made by man. He is the completion of that picture. He is also the completion of being the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. So we have to make sure that our theology works together completely. And so he goes on to say, so... Uh, Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. Have we seen this theme? This is my last comments. Have we seen this theme in the beginning? In John chapter one, did we see it? Where do we see the theme? About him being the temple. And the word put on flesh and tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. 
Where else do we see it in chapter one? I want you to start recognizing the themes in the portraits. Oh, you think that's good? Wait till you get a load of this. You will see the heavens open and you will see the son of man, the angels ascending and descending on the son of man. What was the temple? It is a place where heaven and earth connected. It is a place where God met with man. What is the connector? The son of man, Jesus, he is the temple. He's telling us this. Why? Why is this important for us to see it? Because he said in his mission statement, I specifically chose these portraits. I could have chosen all kinds of other things. Matthew really talked about a lot more things than I did. He gave you the chronological, basically the story. I'm not doing that. I'm putting portraits together so that you can clearly see who he is. He is our groom. He is saving the best for last. He started with a wedding because that's the relationship he wants with you, a covenant relationship and all things. He's saving the best for last. He is gonna do what he came to do. He is gonna save us by his blood. And what do we have to look forward to? We are gonna be sitting there eating meat with the bone in it, drinking the best aged wine, celebrating while he swallows up death and he wipes every tear from our eye and there will be no more mourning and all will be restored. He is telling the people this is who he is. The best is coming last. The bridegroom is here. He is coming after his bride. He is forming a new family, and we're going to see next week, it is a family that is born of spirit. He has authority because he is the tabernacle. He is the temple. And he will not allow this system to be corrupt because it points to him. And so he is saying, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take you killing this temple. And three days later, I will raise up again to be able to give this to you. I mean, this stuff is good. Look at the themes this week. My challenge to you is read chapter one of John every day until we meet again. And then start looking through the portraits yourself. And every time you see the connection of these themes, or you see in a footnote um, a prophecy, go there. It's not a mistake because he's telling them, he's giving them pictures of what they already know. And so when we come back, I never finish anything I think I'm going to do. But when we're coming back, we'll review very quickly the next thing he is going to address. So he's addressed a wedding, a Jewish institution, the temple. Then he's going to address a rabbi, which is their leadership. And then what's next? A well. Four Jewish institutions he is going to address because he is showing them something about him. These aren't just narratives that just apply, you know, to our lives. It, are there deep issues at the well? Yeah. There's racism. There's gender issues. There's socioeconomic issues. And all of those you can hear in the video from last year. All of that's there. But it's even deeper than that. I want you to see the theology that is stretching through. These things I have written that you may know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing, you would have life in his name. We're going to break those down. All right? Do we have hope? I feel a little bit better after this hour than I started with this hour. Do you? You know, it's really interesting. Uh, last night, I couldn't go to bed very well. And... Um, my friend said, Shannon, I think you would really like these scripture meditations where he just reads the scripture. I thought, I think I'm gonna. So I just laid in bed and I let that play. And do you know that three of, he did all the Isaiahs last night, um, of those same Isaiahs, I'm sitting there listening and I'm like, this is amazing how it's connected and all of that, and he also did Revelation 21 last night in that meditation, and so um, it, was, it was pretty sweet. So he, he is close to the brokenhearted. He does care. He does see you. He does know the deep meditations of your heart, and uh, this is not our home. 
we're just passing through. I don't know about you, I'd like to pass through a little quicker sometime. <laughs> um, it can be very overwhelming. And do I still wish I could just get a glimpse of Zach's birthday? You bet. But we will, with the meat in it and the best wine. And if he's there, there will be dancing. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. I thank you for the power in it. And God, I pray that even if there are those in the audience that don't, they don't make every connection, they don't understand everything taught here, I pray that there is something about the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room. I pray that there was a simplicity somewhere in this message that a seed gets planted in them and they get a taste of living water. And they don't know what it is, but they want more of it. So God, I pray that you would just continue to bring them along. Oh, how I'm jealous for them to hear things for the first time. New things about a Savior who loves them, who sees them, a groom who comes that has joy and compassion, who is slow to anger and abounding in love, and that he will wipe every tear from our eye and his desire is to make all things new. And what are we accountable for? Belief. Whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. Thank you for that. We love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.